Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Once again, I want to deeply apologize for not releasing an episode last week. My computer was in the shop getting fixed, which made it a little bit difficult to do the whole recording and editing an episode thing. I'm really awesome at using a phone, but I'm not quite that technologically savvy, and I only know how to record and edit on my laptop, so that made things a little tricky. But hey, it's back and fully functional yet again, so I'm back. Huzzah! This newest series isn't so chronologically linked the way past series have been, Instead, it's more thematically linked and is going to be looking at some really crappy marriages throughout history. Because most of human history has been focused on people in power, aka monarchs, most of the subjects of the study guide are going to be monarchs, but I am going to try to find some non-royal people who had fucked up marriages here and there to balance things out. A good amount. To kick things off, I'm going to be starting out with Isabella of France, who also was known to history as Isabella the She-Wolf, thanks to a poll that I conducted with my Twitter followers, who far and away said that Isabella and her husband, Edward II of England, had the worst marriage of all time. So, Isabella of France and her relationship with Edward II of England. Usually, in historical writing, it's painted as this horrific marriage where Isabella was this total nightmare who was undermining her husband from the moment the two of them got married and who was responsible for some pretty nasty deeds. But is that the truth? Or was Isabella just a young woman who did what she had to do to survive royal society in the Middle Ages? Let's find out. Isabella's study guide includes some near-Scottish abductions, some poorly scheduled romping, and a death that maybe didn't happen. Let's begin. Isabella of France was most likely born sometime in 1295, most certainly between May and November of the year, although some sources argue that she could have been born late as mid-1296 because we're discussing a woman in the mid-Middle Ages, so who cares about the specifics of her biography? Isabella was the daughter of Philip IV of France, also known as Philip the Fair, and his wife, Joan I of Navarre. She is the sixth of seven children and has four brothers, Louis, Philippe, Charles, and Robert, and two sisters, Marguerite and Blanche. However, Robert, Marguerite, and Blanche would all die during Isabella's childhood. We don't know a whole lot about Isabella's childhood. Once again, welcome to being a woman in the Middle Ages, but We do know that she spent most of her childhood 
in Paris, specifically living at the Chateau de Louvre and the Palais de la Cité, and I had a reputation for being super clever and studious, aka the lady-in-waiting who was in charge of raising. Isabella had a reputation for loving books, which suggests that Isabella probably got a fairly good education for a royal woman of her time period. Isabella also very quickly got known for being extremely beautiful, although we actually have no idea what she really looked like. She might have had blonde hair, she might have been a redhead, she may have been a brunette, she may have been tall, she may have been short. We really just don't know, although her contemporary said she was very attractive. In January 1308, when Isabella was around 12 or so, she got married via proxy to Edward II of England. Although the marriage negotiations had begun a decade before, in 1298, when a conflict broke out between England and France over who would get to control the territory of Gascony, and the two countries decided that the best way to avert a full-on war was to marry then-Prince of Wales Edward to one of the daughters of Philip IV of France, and because both of Isabella's sisters were dead by that point, she was decided to be the future wife of the Prince of Wales. Obviously, it took a while for those negotiations to be finalized. The proxy marriage in January 1308 happened in Boulogne in northern France. At the time, Isabella, like I said, was around 12, and her groom was 23 years old. Oh, and also, the two are second cousins, which is totally fine and normal, especially by royal standards of the day. Isabella ended up meeting her husband in February 1308 when she arrived in England. At the time, Edward had been king of England for just over six months, and the two got officially coronated as king and queen of England 18 days later in Westminster Abbey in an appropriately lavish ceremony. In the early years of the marriage, there was basically no relationship between Isabella and her husband. Isabella was way too young to consummate the marriage, even according to the questionable sexual standards of the time. Yes, noble and royal women in the Middle Ages got married way younger than we do nowadays, but even back then, people recognized that having sex with a 12-year-old wasn't the best idea, mostly because most 12-year-olds couldn't survive the whole childbirth thing. More importantly, Edward II had no sexual interest in his prepubescent wife. At the time, he was having an affair with a Gascon nobleman named Piers Galveston. Some sources say the affair was purely emotional, but it seems like the two were almost certainly getting pretty physical. The relationship between Galveston and Edward culminates with Edward making Galveston an earl and one of his main advisors, which was questionable because Gavelston wasn't even English and didn't exactly come from the best 
family. Also, at the same time, Edward may or may not have had an illegitimate son named Adam with a woman whose identity had been lost to history. This is important. A lot of historians like to claim that Edward was some sort of effeminate, prancing homosexual, like a stereotype out of a bad homophobic movie from the 1950s, whereas the reality is he was almost certainly bisexual. Historians, why do you keep erasing bisexuals? We do, in fact, exist. Either way, there is this rumor that Edward kicked off his marriage with Isabella by insulting her in front of everyone after the ceremony by giving all of her wedding gifts to his favorite, Piers Gavelston. But there's no proof that this happened, and in fact, the opposite probably happened because in the historical record, there's evidence that Edward gave Isabella some pretty lavish gifts of his own, including a really beautifully decorated Bible. Regardless of all this, Edward's favorite, Galveston, and by extension, Edward himself, were pretty unpopular by the time of Isabella's marriage due to their less than stellar leadership abilities, which meant that quickly Isabella became an object of sympathy at court, especially with her uncle, the Earl of Lancaster, who also was a man of quite a lot of power within the English court. Beyond that, it's pretty unclear how Isabella personally felt about Piers Gavelston. Piers almost certainly didn't insult her personally the way that Edward's later favorites would, and he wasn't politically threatening to her. He wasn't trying to cut off her access to her husband or try to remove her power at court, limited as it was, given that she was the teenaged wife as the king. And in terms of the affair with Edward, Isabella was probably too young to really understand what was going on. The claims that Isabella loathed him come from much later on, specifically from letters that turned out to be fakes and forgeries. The closest that Piers Galveston came to being a true threat to Isabella is the fact that his father had been one of her father's hostages and had escaped, which had caused some political drama back in France, but even that was fairly low-key in the grand scheme of things. Then, in 1308, soon after the marriage, Edward temporarily exiled Piers, and even though that exile was only for a short time, and Isabella was still only in her early teens, she did start showing some influence at court during the exile. She convinced Edward to grant a lot of political pardons to prisoners, and he started giving her quite a bit of money, including all the payments of the rents from an entire earldom, which wasn't a small amount of money, and the fact that he was doing all of this to for Isabella suggests that when she had the chance, Isabella was willing to pull quite a few strings. However, by 1311, Piers was back in power, was trying to 
influence things at court and work and succeeded. He convinced Edward to try to invade Scotland. And this was a big deal. Right before Edward's father, Edward I, aka Edward Longshanks, had died, he had almost completely succeeded in conquering Scotland, but then he had died. And in that interim period, the Scottish people had started to push the English out under the leadership of one Robert the Bruce, and it was kind of embarrassing for the English people. And Edward II wanted to prove that he was just as good at military affairs as his dad. So, 1311, he goes and tries to invade Scotland. And it ends up being a total failure, and he keeps getting defeated by Robert Bruce. Because she's the Queen of England, Isabella is brought along on the campaign. And because Edward keeps failing and keeps getting defeated... Isabella ends up almost getting captured at one point, but she just manages to escape from the Scottish army. And remember, she's only about 15 years old at this point. The fact that the invasion had totally failed and the Queen of England had almost fallen into Scottish hands was kind of the last straw for a bunch of the English nobles. The next year, in 1312, Pierce Gavelston got assassinated by a group of English nobles that were led by none other than Isabella's uncle, the Earl of Lancaster. By then, Isabella was around 16 years old, aka the perfect age for a princess to start popping out the babies. And that's exactly what happened. She gave birth to a son, the future Edward III of England, on November 13th, 1312. The birth of Edward is a huge deal. Without Edward III's birth, the heirs to the throne of England are Edward II's half-brothers, which is more than a little bit messy. However, in more modern times, there are a ton of rumors that Edward III's father wasn't Edward II, which frankly is bullshit. Isabella and Edward II had been together pretty much constantly around the weeks that Edward III was most likely conceived, and the only man who Isabella may have had an affair with in her lifetime, Roger Mortimer, who I'll be discussing later on in this podcast, was definitively in Ireland at the time of Edward III's conception. Also, Isabella had spoken badly about royal and noble women who had affairs because she felt like it cast the entire line of inheritance in danger. With that in mind, we can be fairly certain that Isabella was not going to mess around with her husband at this point in her life. Isabella and Edward II would end up having three more children— John in 1316, Eleanor in 1318, and Joan in 1321. All four of their children would make it to adulthood, which, by Middle Ages standards, is an amazing track record. Once Piers was dead and Isabella had given birth to his son, the relationship between Isabella and Edward 
really improved. Apparently, the two had a really active sex life and were mutually attracted to each other. As we've established, Isabella was considered to be a major beauty, while Edward II, despite most fictional and modern portrayals of him as this wimpy, weak-wristed, stereotypical gay man, was tall, super built, like we're talking major six-pack here, and was known for his love of the outdoors. According to one story by their contemporaries, Edward was late to a very important diplomatic meeting with no less than Isabella's own father because he overslept because Isabella and him were up so late the night before having sex. Another story from around the same time said that the two were worried that a fire had started in their bedroom while the two were banging and accidentally knocked over a candle, so they ran outside onto a public street totally naked. How embarrassing. But, once again, proof of a very active sex life. However, things between the royal couple couldn't be amazing forever. In 1314, Edward almost got captured by Scottish forces yet again in yet another failed invasion. Even though Edward was amazing in the bedroom, he was less awesome at the whole fighting thing. But things really took a decline in 1318 when Edward promoted a young nobleman named Hugh Dispenser, who was married to one of his nieces to be one of his chamberlains. As it turned out, Dispenser was very bad news for Isabella. Hugh Dispenser was extremely ambitious and decided that the best way to get power at the English court was to limit Isabella. He started cutting off how much Isabella was able to see her husband at court and started to get very close to Edward. So close to Edward that pretty soon rumors were spreading that Edward II was sleeping both with Dispenser as well as Dispenser's wife, who was also Edward's niece, because yes, let's get messy, bitch. By 1322, the relationship between Edward and Isabella began to fall apart due to Dispenser's interference and after yet another failed invasion of Scotland led to Isabella almost getting captured by the Scots yet again and two of her ladies-in-waiting dying in the process because Edward decided to flee with Dispenser instead of her. Oh, and then there was a little fact that Edward had executed her uncle Lancaster for trying to get rid of Dispenser. Yeah, there's a reason why the husband-wife relationship started to take a serious downward spin. Two years later, things got worse when England and France went to war. Under Dispenser's influence, Edward decided to start treating Isabella, aka his wife, like an enemy combatant, which meant he did fun and cute things like giving her lands and custody of her children to Dispenser's family. Unsurprisingly, Isabella was furious. But then, the next year, 
because War with France wasn't exactly going great, since, as we've established, Edward kind of sucked at the whole fighting thing. Edward needed Isabella's help to negotiate a treaty. He ended up sending her to France to deal with the whole peace settlement. As it turned out, Isabella was quite the diplomat, and by March, she and her brother, who was now Charles IV of France, had reached a peace. Shockingly, Isabella decided to stay in France for a while because she wasn't being treated like a prisoner there. Then, Edward sent his and Isabella's oldest son, also Edward, to France to pay Charles homage for English lands in Aquitaine. Once Edward the Younger was in France, Isabella decided that she was going to keep her son with her. Thank you very much. Because Edward the Younger was technically heir to the throne in England, Isabella finally had a little bit of power for once, and she was going to use that power. She told her dearly beloved husband that she and her son would not be coming back to England unless Edward got rid of Dispenser and allowed Isabella to go back to living her normal married life, stop treating her like the enemy, and restored and restored all her lands to her. Edward, for reasons that frankly are unclear to me, refused and said, no, Dispenser is more important to me than you are. So Isabella said, fuck it, I'm staying in France. During her time in France, Isabella met an exiled English nobleman, Roger of Mortimer, who had been friends with her uncle, and who wasn't exactly the world's biggest fan of either Hugh Spencer or Edward II. The two soon became allies in their desire to bring down Spencer, and if that meant bringing down the king in the process, so be it. Modern literature suggests that the two had something going on and implies that they were lovers, but the reality on that is much less clear. It's more probable that they were just platonic allies. After all, Roger Murdermore was married throughout all of this, and there are no hints from their own contemporaries that he ever cheated on his wife, but the whole being accused of being lovers may have been part of a larger smear campaign against Isabella for going against traditional female roles. The first step in the Isabella and Murdimer plan to get rid of Dispenser and by extension Edward was to engage her son Edward to the daughter of the Count of Hainault, who was the Count of modern-day Belgium. The Count was super wealthy and, as part of the engagement, agreed to give Isabella money, soldiers, and ships. With that in hand, Isabella and Mortimer were able to launch an invasion off of the coast of modern-day Belgium into England in September 1326. And this invasion ended up working. Basically, as soon as their forces landed in England, Edward's support completely collapsed. As it turned out, he and Spencer weren't all that popular among the English nobility due to their pretty 
blatant corruption and mismanagement. Pretty soon, Isabella's forces captured and executed both Dispenser and his father. Dispenser's father was hacked to pieces and fed to dogs, while Dispenser himself had various biblical verses written all over his body before being hanged, drawn, and quartered, which is, you know, a fun way to die. By January 1327, Isabella and her forces were basically in charge of all of England. And remember, she's only around 31 or so. Now that she was in charge, Isabella had to figure out what to do next. So, being a sensible woman, she called a parliament to figure out what came next. This parliament decided that Edward II needed to abdicate. And because Isabella was a woman, she of course couldn't rule. The power had to go to her and Edward II's son, Edward III. By now, all of Edward II's allies were either dead, see Dispenser, or had already joined up with Isabella, so he begrudgingly agreed. Edward III came over from France and officially got coronated as Edward III of England on February 25th, 1327. The next year, he finally got married to the Count of Hainault's daughter, Philippa. Even though Edward III was now king and his father was in state custody, it was a bit unclear who was actually in charge. At 15, Edward III was a little too young to be ruling on his own, so a regency council was set up. Neither Isabella nor Mortimer were on the council, but everyone knew that the two of them were going to have some sort of power or influence in the rule of England. And then, a few months later, in September 1327, Edward II turned up dead in his prison in Berkeley Castle in Gloucestershire. The exact way that Edward died is still unclear. One possibility is that his jailers kept throwing in the corpses of animals and humans that had died of various diseases into his, into his prison cell, and he got one of those diseases and died of that. A lot of contemporary chronicles said that his jailers either suffocated or strangled him on royal orders so that Edward II wouldn't complicate Edward III's future reign, but the most scandalous and popular story that lasts even nowadays is that Edward II was killed via a red-hot poker into the anus that wouldn't leave any outer marks. That story probably isn't how Edward II died. It didn't start circulating until the mid and late 1330s, aka a decent amount after the fact. And then there's the question of how involved was Isabella in whatever way Edward died. Some sources say that she was in the room watching as the murder happened, or in the case of the poker story, she was the one to actually stick it up in there. And then some people say 
that she had no idea that there was a plot to kill Edward because she had been regularly sending her husband gifts while he was in captivity. And then there's the possibility that Edward II didn't even die in September 1327 because in 1330 a rumor started that Edward II was alive and was perfectly healthy. This rumor was started by no less than the Archbishop of York, who is a pretty big deal, and the story was further spread by the mayor of London. The rumor got enough support that Edmund of Woodstock, Edward II's half-brother, died in an attempt to find and rescue the surviving Edward. Exactly where Edward II ended up if he survived is unclear. Some people said that he went to Ireland before traveling on to Rome, where he lived under the custody of the Pope, whereas other people said he eventually reunited with his son and secretly lived at court with him. The idea of Edward II secretly surviving for multiple years is pretty unlikely. He almost certainly died in prison custody in September 1327. He almost certainly was killed by his captors in some way. It probably was some form of suffocation, whether by a pillow or strangulation in some other way. Whether or not Isabella knew, less certain. I doubt she was actively in the room while it happened, but she probably had some pretty strong hints as to what was to come. By the end of 1327, even though Isabella wasn't actually on the Regency Council, she was pretty much ruling the country. And while everyone was thrilled when she had shown up at the end of 1326, the more power Isabella started getting, the less and less popular she became. As it turned out, she was also kind of corrupt, and much like her husband and his oh-so-beloved advisors, Isabella wasn't exactly prioritizing helping the average English peasant. Instead, she had a not-so-great habit of using money from taxes to pay for an extremely lavish lifestyle. In fact, she had this most expensive household in Middle Age English history that wasn't a household of an actual king. I think it was something like 14,000 pounds a year, and then the next most expensive non-royal household after hers was something like 6,000 pounds a year. So you can just see the levels of wealth that she was spending. In June 1330, Edward III and his wife had their first child together. By now, Edward III is 18, which traditionally was an age of majority in England. He feels like now that he has an heir, now that he's a grown-up, it's time for him to rule on his own. So in October 1330, Edward III launches a political coup against both his mother and her right-hand man, main advisor, 
possible but unlikely lover, Roger Murdamore, and this coup succeeded. Roger Murdamore is executed, and Isabella gets imprisoned in one of the royal family's many castles. Eventually, Edward does let Isabella go. She is, after all, his own mother, and kings of England traditionally don't execute their mothers. And by now, Edward is trying to claim the throne of France using Isabella's claim as a daughter of the King of France, so killing her would make that whole endeavor more than a little bit messy. Once Isabella is freed from captivity, Edward ends up letting her live like a traditional dowager queen at various castles for the rest of her life. Isabella will mostly live in Windsor Castle by London and at Rising Castle in Norfolk provided that she keeps her head down, and Isabella is mostly going to keep her head down. In fact, Edward is going to treat Isabella super leniently. He's going to restore all the lands to her that her husband had confiscated, and is going to give her a pretty sizable allowance. As the Dowager Queen, Isabella is going to be super close to her daughter Joan, who had once been Queen of Scotland, and also is going to be really close to Edward's own wife, Philippa. She also apparently adored her oldest grandson, Edward, and ended up leaving him most of her property when she died. As Isabella got older, she became much more religious. She started to regularly visit Westminster Abbey, specifically the Shrine to Thomas Becket, and may have joined a local order of nuns. Is it beyond that, however, we don't know all that much about Isabella's life post-imprisonment, mostly because, like I mentioned, she kept her head down, she wasn't that involved in court, wasn't really doing all that much, which probably in the long run was better for her. Isabella ended up dying on August 22nd, 1358, around the age of 63, in Hertford Castle, she was buried in Greasefriars Chapel in London next to one of her aunts and her daughter Joan. However, both the church and her tomb were completely destroyed in the London Fire of 1666. So, what was Isabella's reputation like after her death? While well, rumors that Isabella had been involved in Edward's death and that Edward's death had been particularly nasty did start within her own lifetime, she was overall pretty well respected by her own contemporaries. Edward, by contrast, was much more unpopular due to his poor military and leadership skills and the fact that he was deeply tied to same-sex relationships. We don't really start to see negative depictions of her until the 16th century with the Tudors and those negative depictions of her really reach their height in the Victorian era, which makes sense given the Victorians' very strict code of morality. That's when we really get that traditional image of Isabella as this like evil, conniving she-wolf who is super murderous and adulterous, whereas the reality, as we've seen, 
is a little bit more complicated. However, that image of the scheming sexual Isabella has lasted past the Victorians. Probably the most famous example of that is in the 1995 film Braveheart, where Isabella sleeps with the titular Braveheart, even though he died in 1305, when she was still only 10 years old and was still living in France. So there was no physical way that he fathered any children with her. By now, in most modern, by which I mean like post-2000 books on Isabella, we are seeing more of a pushback against the Victorian trope of her, you are starting to see a more complex view of Isabella, which I think is more appropriate. She wasn't all good. She wasn't all bad. She was complicated. And as it turns out, that's what most human beings are, whether they're men or women. Who knew? As always, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick little recap of the life and times and scandals and horrible marriage of Isabella, the she-wolf of France. Isabella of France was most likely born in 1295 and was the daughter of the King of France and his wife, Joan of Navarre. When she was around three years old, she got engaged to Edward, the Prince of Wales, who would later become Edward II, although the two weren't actually engaged although the two didn't get married until a decade later when Isabella was the much more appropriate age of about 12 and Edward was a young and healthy 23 years old. The marriage between Edward and Isabella started out rocky. After all, Isabella was only 13 and Edward was in the middle of an intense affair with his favorite nobleman, Piers Gavelston. While Gavelston and Isabella according to their contemporaries, had a fine working relationship. At least Piers wasn't trying to physically remove Isabella from the English court. Piers was less popular with the English nobles and eventually got executed by a group of nobles led by Isabella's uncle, the Earl of Lancaster. After Piers died, Isabella and Edward ended up having a son together, the future Edward III. Their son started a pretty good moment in their relationship. Between about 1312 and 1322, Isabella and Edward had three more children and a very active sex life, which led to them getting into some fun escapades, like showing up to meetings late because they were too busy banging and accidentally running into public naked because they had literally set their bedroom on fire. However, in the 1320s, Edward got really close to a new young nobleman, Hugh Spencer, who was super ambitious and, as part of his ambition, started to sideline Isabella. When England and France went to war in 1324, because, let's be real, when are England and France not at war, Hugh Spencer convinced Edward to treat Isabella like an enemy combatant. And shockingly, Isabella was not a fan of this. When Edward offered Isabella the option to go visit family in France, 
Isabella took her dearly beloved husband up on that offer and decided he stay in France with her oldest son, the heir to the throne of England, and refused to come back. During her time in France, she met an exiled English nobleman, Roger Murdamar, who also didn't love her husband or a dispenser. Soon, the two were in cahoots and possibly in each other's beds as they planned a way to take down dispenser and the king with him if the need so arose. Eventually, after engaging Edward to the daughter of a wealthy count, the plan was in motion, and in September 1326, Isabella launched a successful invasion. In the process, she got to oversee the execution of her unfavorite, Hugh Dispenser. In February 1327, after calling a parliament, Isabella forced her husband to abdicate in favor of her teenage son, Edward. Because the new king, now Edward III, was too young to rule on his own and technically had a regency council, Isabella was basically the one in charge. A few months later, Edward III mysteriously turned up dead. Maybe he had been killed via diseased-ridden corpses. Maybe he had been killed via a red-hot poker up the anus. Or maybe, and most likely, he had simply been smothered to death. Either way, and regardless of how much Isabella knew about it, he was out of the picture. Unless he had survived and escaped and made his way to Rome to live out the rest of his years in the custody of the Pope. Although almost no one believes that actually happened. That was just a fun rumor that sprung up years later. Isabella and her favorite, Roger Mortimer, would spend the next few years wielding all the power in England until June 1330, when Isabella's son, Edward III, came of age and overthrew his mother in a nice little successful political coup. While Edward III did execute Roger Mortimer, Isabella was simply temporarily imprisoned before being let go and getting to live out the rest of her days as a traditional dowager queen with a beautifully elaborate allowance. Isabella France died in August 1358 around the age of 63 and was buried next to her daughter Joan in Greyfriars Chapel in London, although her resting place was destroyed in the line in the London Fire of 1666. While Isabella had a very exciting and eventful life, as it turns out, most of the super fun scandals about her, like the whole shoving a red-hot poker up her husband's asshole, probably aren't true. Most of my research for this episode came from the History Extra article on Isabella, the English Monarchs article about Isabella, the History Vault article about the facts and fictions on Edward II's death, Isabella of France by Catherine Wagner, and Alison Weir's work on Isabella of France. As always, for, as always, for a full list of sources, as well as relevant images, you can visit sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or ideas for study guides, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next time, I'll be covering the less-than-great marriage of Sophia Dorothea of Cell. 
If you want to financially support the podcast, I hugely appreciate that. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Patrons get access to bi-monthly tangent casts where I talk about people, places, or things that don't quite fit in to a full-length study guide. Our upcoming tangent cast is going to be discussing Joan of the Tower, Isabella's daughter, who also didn't have the greatest marriage, although at least her marriage wasn't all that murdery. As always, if you want to reach out on social media, you can do so on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod or on Instagram at sadgirlstudy. If you want to help the podcast grow, tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify, and please let us know how you're doing. And please let us know how we're doing. Read or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks.